Well, I want to speak on behalf of, of Bruce and, and Jacob as well and just say thank you for, for, your, uh, for your cards. Thank you for, for being a part of our church. We, uh, it, it is a, a deep and profound honor uh, to be able to, to pastor uh, and to, to shepherd uh, the, the people of God. And I know year in and year out, uh, I feel like each year of ministry here is more sweeter is that a word? Uh, we'll, we'll act like it's a word. Don't, don't check my grammar here. See what happens if I don't have notes. Um, each year is sweeter than the last. Uh, and, and I'm so thankful uh, for you all uh, and for your faithfulness, your partnership in the gospel. And, uh, we, we love uh, being here and being a part of ABF. So thank you. And, uh, I'm, I, I want to take a, a little bit of a, a break from the gospel of John. I, I do this every so often. We're going to be in Ephesians uh, today and uh, in, in the, over the course of the next few weeks. So if you have your copy of God's Word and open up to, to Ephesians 5, uh, as, you're, as you're turning there, back in, in 1848, uh, there were a, a series of, of revolutions in, in Europe that made that quite a, a tumultuous year. I know we, we kind of look back at uh, Night or 2020 uh, as being a, a tumultuous year, and as uh, you know, 1968 and 63 being tumultuous years as well. But 1848 would also rank up there, especially in, in European history. Uh, so there's a multiple revolutions throughout Europe that year, and in that same year, uh, with those revolutions as the the backdrop, the the Communist League. Uh, a political party located uh, in London, England, commissioned Karl Marx and, and Friedrich uh, Engels uh, to write a political pamphlet expressing uh, the views of that party. And you're probably familiar with what they wrote, uh, became known as the Communist Manifesto. Uh, and it is uh, available for free online, and I would encourage you to find it and to read it. Why would I say that? Because I, I want you to be familiar with what uh, it is uh, calling for and what it is seeking to accomplish, because that document is one of the most influential documents that will help you to understand uh, our current climate, uh, even 175 years later uh, and, and across uh, a vast ocean. Uh, but if you wanted to know and understand what our, our world and our culture is seeking to do here in America, uh, read that document. Uh, Marx and, and Engels kind of set forth a view of history that understands everything through a, a lens of class struggle and class conflict. And they say that every class struggle is really a political struggle. They, they make everything uh, political. And, and their, their theory, theory presupposes that, that conflict, uh, that class struggle is the, the, the beginning and the end and the cause of all struggles within society. And so because they begin with that assumption, they find it wherever they, they look. And in that pamphlet, Marx and Engels list out what they, they hope to accomplish and what they're, what they're striving to do. And as they seek to create a righteous society and the solutions that they propose, and I'll, I'll list them off. I'll have a couple of quotes here. But the first thing, that one of the things that they want to abolish in seeking to make the state government preeminent, they, they want to, and they say this in their manifesto, they want to abolish individuality and freedom. Uh, right along with that, they want to abolish private property. Uh, and they also want to abolish the family. And this is a direct quote. He says, do you charge us with wanting to stop the exploitation of children by their parents? 
to this crime we plead guilty. So they're framing everything of, hey, this is uh, parents exploiting their children for their uh, labor. They want to redirect education. Uh, This is another direct quote. He says, and your education, is it not that also social uh, and determined by the social conditions under which you educate? And by the intervention of direct or indirect uh, of society by means of schools, etc., the communists have not invented the intervention of society in education. They do not seek to alter character of that, the character of the, I'm sorry, I've misread that. But they do seek to alter the character of that intervention and to rescue education from the influence of the ruling class. So that they seek to, to go in and to, to change education because whatever is taught to the upcoming generation, that's how they're going to view and interpret life moving forward. Also, they, they sought to abolish marriage in favor of a system of wives in common. They sought to abolish countries and nationalities and the, really the abolition of any and every foundation for society. And that's my own paraphrase there. This is a quote. It says, there are besides eternal truths such as freedom, justice, etc., that are common to all states of society. But communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality. Instead of constituting them on a new basis, it therefore acts in contradiction to all past historical experience. So in any and everything that society is built upon, they want to destroy it and then remake it uh, in their own image. And later they dismiss any and all criticism and discussion of their theory with these words. And I just thought this was very prideful and boastful and They say this, the charges against communism made from a religious, a philosophical, and generally from an ideological standpoint are not deserving of serious examination. So if you were to even bring it, what about this? They just say, no, it's not even worth time to discuss. That's built into uh, the overall worldview. And and so, you know, I wanted to, to take some some weeks to talk through Ephesians 5 and what is known as the, the household code. Talk through what is a, what is a Christian household to look like. And from what I just read, it's easy to, to see and to understand what was written 175 years ago. They're still striving for today and they're doing it in, in various hidden ways, but they are very much seeking to accomplish it. Uh, and so we see that the, the family is under attack from outside forces in the world. And that, that is obviously clear. Uh, but, but I would also say that the family, uh, under its own weight, has a tendency of crumbling from within, right? Uh, how many of you made it to church this morning without any conflicts getting into the car? Right? You get a gold sticker on your, your, your name tag, right? Uh, or how many of you didn't have conflict this week? Right? See, the, re- the reality is there, there's pressures upon every single family from the outside, but there's also pressures from within, right? Because the family is made up of sinners. And so because of that, there's going to be conflict on a regular basis. There's going to be misunderstandings. There's going to be opportunities for sanctification. And and I would say this, if we don't resolve conflict well, a family can very quickly and very easily crumble from within. And I would also say this, if we are not seeking to build our family according to the blueprints of what God has commanded, because he created 
the household uh, with a purpose uh, and with a specific design uh, that if we build according to his design, the household is going to, to function well and it's going to, to thrive. Everything that God has given to us and commanded of us is for human flourishing. Uh, God commands what is best. So if we seek to build according to his blueprint, uh, things go well. If we seek to say, well, let's, let's toss aside those blueprints uh, and we'll just build what we, ever, we, we desire. That's going to lead to, to hardship in uh, our households. Uh, and, and the household is, is so important because so much of life takes place there. Uh, the household is where everything begins. Uh, and if your house is not in order, it is hard for anything else in life to be in order. Right? If, when there's conflict in your home, is it easy to focus on work outside of the home? Right? We talk about conflict is like a black hole. Right? You, you can't focus on anything external uh, because it just absorbs your, your time and your thought and your energy. Your, your mind continues to go back to those conflicts. So the home matters. And as we're going to see in, the, in coming weeks, really in our households, we get to, to showcase the glory of God. Uh, we get to put the, the glory of God, the character of God on display in the way that we as Christians uh, live and build our households, how they function. And so the home is about and for God. And that's where I, I wanted to, to take a break from the Gospel of John because as, as wonderful as that Gospel is, it never addresses any of these things about the Christian household. Uh, and I thought, you know, maybe every five or six years, give or take, I should talk about this. That's a, that's a good thing, every once in a while, right? Uh, and so uh, the, the, the bigger picture of Ephesians, uh, chapters 1 through 3, Paul is going to, to teach and to instruct this church concerning their calling of what God has done to to save them in Christ. So he lays out God's eternal plan of salvation. And in chapter two, he emphasizes that both Jew and Gentile have been united into one body in the church. And they are called to now live out that unity as they live for the gospel and put it on display. So chapters one through three is really about salvation. Now, if you look at chapter one, verse four, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So God, the father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless. And if you, if you look over at chapter 4, verse 1, this, we studied this several weeks ago, but in the, the second half of uh, Ephesians, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul's going to instruct uh, the, the Ephesians how to, to live based upon what he's just taught them. Say, hey, this is your salvation in Christ. This is who you are, how God has worked in your lives. Uh, and now this is what you need to do in, in response to that salvation. Uh, and so chapter 1, verse 4, he said, you've been called uh, to be holy and blameless. And then look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Right? I, I want you to live out uh, the, the emphasis upon your life. God has, has saved you in Christ, and now I want you to live accordingly. Uh, and in chapters 4, 5, and 6, there's going to be five occasions in which the Apostle Paul tells uh, the Ephesians to walk in a particular way. Now, we see it here, uh, the, the first of these in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, they are to walk worthy of the calling with which they have been called. If you look over at chapter 4, verse 17... 
says, therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord that you that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. And when he uses Gentiles there, he's referring to unbelievers. So don't walk as uh, unbelievers, but walk as believers, walk as followers of Christ. And the idea of walk in in each of these uh, usages is the idea of your your daily conduct, your daily living, that you are to live in this way. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 is another one of the, the walks. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So we're to, to walk in love as children of God. And then chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Is therefore do not be partakers with them, speaking of the sons of disobedience, but you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so walk as children of light. And then chapter 5, verse 15, that the fifth and final walk is therefore look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And this is where we, we want to, to land and we want to, to study this morning. Because in, in this passage, in this fifth and final walk, Paul's really going to be exhorting them to something from the Old Testament. Right? He says, walk in, in wisdom. It's an Old, Old Testament concept here. If you look with me at these verses, 15 to 21, Therefore, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And on account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So Paul is, is exhorting them to, to walk in, in wisdom. And, and as we know from uh, studying the Old Testament, wisdom is, is a big comprehensive subject. And wisdom is, is timeless. And there's so much written in the Old Testament about wisdom. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs, 42 chapters in the book of Job, 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, and then numerous other wisdom psalms. So it's going to be interesting. As Paul says, walk in wisdom, you're like, how is he going to take all of those chapters full of wisdom from the Old Testament and distill it down here in Ephesians? So, so what we're going to, to have as we look at these verses is Paul really condensing down what Christian wisdom looks like. Uh, and he's going to, to give them in these verses, there's going to be three contrasts where he's going to he's going to give a prohibition of don't do this. And he's going to contrast that don't do this, but do this instead. Uh, and each of those contrasts is going to provide us with uh, a an overarching principle of wisdom for the Christian life. And uh, as, as we look at these three contrasts and these overarching principles, the, the first of them it's found in verses 15 and 16, where he says, uh, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And I would say the, the, the wisdom principle here is that we are to carefully, 
consider how you live. Carefully consider how you live. The the way that this is uh, laid out and set up, there's a, there's a command, uh, and the command is to, to look or, or to, to consider, to, to slowly and accurately examine uh, how you are living. And, and this is something that we often just speed right past. When was the last time that you gave thought to what you are doing in life, what you're choosing to do, what you're prioritizing, uh, what you're doing and why are you, you're doing it? Or sometimes we just kind of pushed along. We just kind of jump into the river of life and we are carried forward without much thought. Right? If you've ever floated the Boise River, you're just kind of passive. Right? You're just going with the current and then suddenly you're like, when, you, when disaster's ahead, then what do you do? Okay, now I got a paddle. And that's how most of us live, right? We're, we're not planning ahead. We're not looking forward. We're just kind of going wherever the current takes us. And, and Paul's exhortation here to the Ephesians is you need to think about life. What are you doing? Where are you going? And he lays out two options, right? He says, look carefully how you walk. And there's really going to be two options. You're either walking unwisely or you're walking wisely. And he tells them, don't walk unwisely, but make sure that you are walking wisely. So it's helpful to, to try to distinguish, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? To be, to be unwise is really lacking proper spiritual discernment, right? To, to walk in an unwise manner means that you're not rightly valuing or prioritizing things. Now, that the, the things of this earth that have no spiritual value, you're focused upon those, and the things that have eternal spiritual value are getting swept aside, or you're not pursuing those things. That's what it means to to live unwisely. You're wrongly valuing earthly matters over eternal matters. And there's a prohibition here. This is where this comes in. That Christians, as Christians, we are not to walk unwisely. We are not to, to walk in foolishness. Foolishness is sinful. But instead of walking unwisely, we are commanded to walk with wisdom. Uh, knowing uh, how to to skillfully live the Christian life. What do I need to do in this situation? I've, I've said it in, uh, as we've looked at Old Testament passages, but, but wisdom is knowing out of all of these options, what's the best one for me to pursue? Uh, and then what's the best route for me to get to that destination? Where should I be going and how do I get there? That's what wisdom uh, involves. Uh, and this is an understanding of the Christian life of what am I aiming for? Where am I going? And how do I get there? And as we see in the Old Testament, wisdom begins with knowing and fearing God. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge and ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. There's another clarification there as Paul says, don't walk uh, unwisely but walk wisely don't walk according to your wisdom that would be the unwise living but walk according to the wisdom of god and this mindset of wise walking and wise living now if you look at verse 16 it's it's further described of how do we walk wisely in this present time he says redeeming the time and the idea is that you are you're buying it up that, that you are purchasing it uh, in order to, to gain advantage or gain opportunities, you're making the most of what has been given to you. And time is the great equalizer, right? That every single person here has the same number of hours and minutes every single week. 
And what are we doing in, in utilizing that time? Are we using it for good? Are we using it for ourselves? Are we using it for God's glory? Are we using it for uh, wise pursuits or foolish pursuits? How are we using the time that we have been given? And we need to make the most of the time. And what does he say there at the end of verse 16? Because he says the days are evil. Well, what does that mean? What is he talking about? He says that the days are evil. There's multiple meanings there, what it could possibly be. It could, in, in speaking of uh, just the end times and the church age, could be saying that the, time, the, this, uh, the end times are times of evil in which it is difficult to do good. I would say just probably on a simpler note, I think he just means the days are against us, right? They just go by really, really quickly. And it is difficult. If the days are against you, it makes doing good hard. It's an uphill climb, an uphill battle. And because the days are against us, they just go by like that. I have to use every opportunity that I have to redeem the time, the time that I've been given. I have to say I have to use this for good. I got to buy up all that I can and use it for good and do all the good that I can do while I'm here on this earth. And that is the, the emphasis here. And if, if we are to examine our life carefully and accurately, and that's that emphasis back in, in verse 15, look carefully. The idea is that there is some type of a standard that I'm evaluating my life based upon. I would say that is the scriptures. But as we examine our life carefully and, and really determine how we have been walking, only one of those two categories, am I walking wisely, am I walking unwisely? And there's a, a certain age that we hit in life where this type of introspection just comes naturally. It just begins to, to crop up in our minds and in our hearts, right? Back in 1965, a gentleman by the name of Elliot Jacques coined the term mid-life crisis. We're probably familiar with that term, right? But between those ages of, of 40 and, and 60, right, when you, you, be, you start to, to look at the, the calendar and you kind of calculate your age and say, you know what, I am about at the, the halfway mark of this race that I'm running. Uh, and, and I'm kind of starting to, to run downhill. And as time goes on, it's, it seems to go faster and faster seems to, to escape us with a greater rapidity. And you, you would begin to evaluate the decisions that you made earlier in life. You begin to, to regret certain decisions. You begin to see what decisions were, were wise. And sometimes such an evaluation can lead to depression and anxiety, anger, despair. Right? It might lead some people to try to cling to, to youth. For as long as they can, when you start to, to feel like the, the sands of time are slipping through your fingers, you say, I want to hold on as fast as, as long as I can to you. And that doesn't usually go well. Right. Right. To see a 50 year old man dressed like a 20 year old, you're like, that's just not right. That's just not that's not the way it's supposed to be. Right. Some people might cling to youth as long as they can. Others, they might be, begin to, to prompt them to live more decisively. It might prompt others to action. Say, you know what? My time is limited, and if I'm going to do this, I have to do it now. I have to act. I know, you know, years ago when Bruce and I were talking about moving and church planting, Bruce was in his mid-50s, and he says, Thomas, i got to go now. Right? This is going to be a lot of work, and I only have a, you know, a 15 to 25-year window left. 
I got to go now. I can't wait longer and longer. Uh, And that's a good example of why I have to redeem the time that I have. Moses talked about this in Psalm 90. If you want to turn back there. I love this psalm. Psalm 90, beginning in verse 9. Moses says, For all our days have declined in your fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to might, 80 years. And yet their pride is but labor and wickedness, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due to you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. What a profound prayer, right? Lord, give me wisdom and insight into counting and numbering each and every day. Because each, as each and every day passes by, I no longer have that day. The Lord knows the exact number of days that you have and the exact number of days that I have, but we don't know. Sometimes we, we think we have a lot more years, a lot more days ahead of us than we actually have. So, so we need to understand, we need to redeem the time that we have. We need to, to buy up every opportunity. And among the greatest joys that we can feel at the end of our lives is that we have lived well. Second Timothy 4, 7. This is Paul's words to his young son in the faith. Uh, as he's in prison and he's, he's not going to get out of prison. He knows he's going to his death. And he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I think that's what we all strive to do, Right? Jonathan Edwards, when, when, when he was younger, by the age of 19, he had written about 70 resolutions, give or take. Some of them came a little bit later, but he spent a lot of time, even as a young man, thinking about life. Some of those resolutions, resolution number five, he says, I'm resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. He's thinking with eternity in mind and his own mortality. Number 52, he says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to an old age. So, so he's thinking about his own mortality. And no matter your age, it is always wise to consider carefully how you are living. But we tend to, to speed right past that. It is worthy of your time to, to set aside phones, screens, devices, go into a room... Uh, and and get down on your knees and and pray or go outside and, and go for a walk but go spend some time undistracted uninhibited and think about your life how are you living what are you living for what are you aiming at or are you just kind of walking in circles spinning around and not really going anywhere cry out to god for wisdom for understanding 
Think and take that time now to consider carefully so that you don't have those regrets later on. The wisdom principle that Paul gives us here, carefully consider how you live. And there's a a second principle here. It's, It's similar to the first in verse 17. He says, on account of this, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. And this is our, our second contrast. And you can lay out this principle in, in essence that we are called to, to diligently learn the Lord's will. Right? The, the logical flow here is, is easy to, to follow. As you examine your life, you might realize, I am not doing what I need to be doing. I recognize that. that that's the easy part. It's easy to recognize when you're lost. Right? I don't see anything around here that I know. Right? It's easy to identify when you're lost. What's the more difficult thing to understand? Where am I to go from here? Right? And, and that's where it is important that we know the will of the Lord. And that is the exhortation. The prohibition begins the contrast uh, in verse 17. On account of this, because the days are evil, do not be foolish. There's our prohibition. Do not be ignorant. Don't... don't have a lack of knowledge and understanding in this area. But here, so the the prohibition, do not be foolish. I think a better translation would be, do not become ignorant, in terms of the the Greek verbs there. But do not become ignorant. But then the command is, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And the, the idea of understanding here is to have an intelligent grasp of something Right? Verse, uh, Luke 24, verse 45, uses this same word. It says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Right? So Christ walking with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, he, he works in their hearts and in their minds and gives them understanding. He, he gives them clarity uh, to, to grasp something. But it's, a, it's an interesting verb. It's an interesting command. If I say understand something, I'm really talking about the end result. Right? Understanding isn't the first step in a process. What's the first step in a process of understanding? I have to learn. I have to read. I have to study. I have to think about and meditate upon. Uh, And the end result is to understand. Right? Understanding doesn't precede reading or learning. It comes after. So this command to understand is also a command to, to learn and to grow and to understand what God has communicating to us, right? Now, you must learn the Lord's will for your life. And, and how do we do that? Again, we go to the Word. The Word of God reveals to us the mind of God. Uh, and the mind of God is going to tell us God's will for our lives. So if you ever wondered what God's will is for your life, uh, you need to go seek it in the Scriptures. All right, sometimes there's a, there's a lot of wrong understandings about the will of God in Christian circles. Sometimes we feel like it is uh, a, a buried treasure somewhere out there, and we go out and seek it and search it. Uh, and then we get really, really discouraged if we never find it. You're out, you're out there wandering around, where do I find the will of God? Uh, and then we, we say, well, I must have missed it somewhere. Not a, a secret buried treasure it's not a, a mystery that requires a decoder ring. Don't have to go to the Cracker Jack box or the Ovaltine, right? Uh, all of it. That's not how the mystery of God's will works. Uh, the, the will of God is made known in the Word of God. There was a a, a sermon that Al Mohler preached uh, at a at a college uh, student conference years and years ago. 
And within that, he gave 15 things you already know about God's will for your life. It's a really wonderful thing. And as you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, this is, this is kind of obvious. I do know some things about what God's will for me is. It says, number one, it is God's will that you were born. How do, how do you know that? Because you're here, right? And, and it's important to also think through, but you're not a cosmic accident, right? That you are he, here because God has led you to be born. It is God's will that you will die. Number two, right? You are here for a finite period of time. Uh, it is appointed unto man uh, to die once, and then comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27, that we, are all ha- we all have an end point. Uh, and in that in-between time, it is God's will that you would grow, right? Physically, intellectually, spiritually, uh, socially. He wants you to, to grow and to mature from, from childhood into adulthood. You know that God wants you to grow. It is God's will also that you were made male or female. And that you embrace that and live accordingly. God's will is revealed in who he has made you to be. It's also God's will that you believe in Christ. How can we say that? Well, because uh, the commands of God reveal the the will of God. uh, And there are multiple commands everywhere in Scripture that we would look to Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death. We are to look to him in faith. And to no longer trust in ourselves, but to trust in him for our salvation. We are to believe in Christ. It's God's will that you would follow Christ as his disciple. The same principles. It is God's will that you would trust and obey the scriptures. It is God's will that you would respect and obey authorities. It is God's will that you will be married. There's going to be some who have the, the gift of celibacy, and we can talk about that at another point in time. But for the most part... Uh, all of us here, God wants you to, to be married. What is the command that he gave uh, to Adam and Eve and then to Noah and his uh, children to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? God's will uh, for, uh, for us is that we would be married, that we would be then faithful and remain in that marriage, that we would develop and exercise the gifts as he has invested uh, and given to us. Uh, we would use what he gives to us for his glory. It is God's will that you would be deeply involved in the local church. God's will that you would lead. And there's various degrees of that. But if you're a husband and father, as we're going to see here in Ephesians 5, it's God's will that you would lead your household well. It's also God's will that you would share the gospel, to go forth and proclaim. It's God's will that you would do everything for his glory. So there's a, there's a lot there in the scriptures that tell you what God is calling you to do and to be. We just have to, to think it through just a little bit. And then if this is the the overarching wisdom principle that I'm to understand what the will of the Lord is, am I seeking to learn and grow in that? And do I have that understanding? When we have that understanding, it's really easy to make decisions and to know where we are to to go and what we are to do. And then I guess a follow-up question. You may know what the Lord wants you to do in, in this given situation, but then what's the more difficult thing? Sometimes to actually... To do it, right? To, to walk in obedience. I know what the Lord is calling me to do, but I'm slow to obey. I'm prone to wander. But, but we need to submit our lives to God and, and to, to obey His Word and what He is revealing to us in His uh, will. So these are the, the first two wisdom principles in these, these first two contrasts, that we are to, to carefully consider our lives and we are to diligently learn God's will. There's a third wisdom principle uh, given here by Paul in verses 18 to, to 21. 
And we see in these verses that there's, he begins with the prohibition, just like he did previously. He says, and do not get drunk with wine. Uh, and he says, for that is, is dissipation. And so this is this prohibition. Uh, he says, don't uh, become intoxicated. Don't uh, go down that road. It's like, why is, he, why is he going there? Why is he pulling that out of a hat and, and talking about that suddenly? He says, well, that's an example of being out of control. Right? And when you are drunk with, with wine, uh, and he says, he clarifies, he says, that is dissipation. And that's not usually a word that we use every day or really any day. Uh, but, but dissipation is the idea of unrestrained living. It's the idea of living with, with reckless abandon. And really, when, when we, if you give in to intoxication and get drunk with wine, that's just going to lead to the multiplication of, of sin and sorrows. Uh, that, that's what it's going to, to lead to. But in contrast with that, he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But, and here's the, the positive command, be filled with the Spirit. And probably a, a better understanding of that command is be filled by the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit. That, that's the, that's the, the positive. But what does that mean? Well, it's the idea of to be filled with the Spirit is to be, to be moved along or carried along in our Christian life by God Himself. It's the idea of a, a, how does a sailboat move, right? It puts the sails up and then the, the wind propels it forward. That's, that's how we are to live the Christian life. Uh, the idea of being filled with the Spirit also means that, that He permeates your entire life. Uh, that his uh, uh, presence is there in every aspect of life, and then your living reflects his presence there with you. And to be filled with the Spirit also implies that he has total control, right? But when you are filled with fear, what is it that's dominating you? But when you when you are filled with anger, that's what's dominating you. To be filled with the Spirit or by the Spirit is that the Spirit is the one dominating and leading and guiding you in that moment. So drunkenness implies that you are out of control. Being filled in, in the Spirit or with the Spirit implies that you are in control, but not really in control, because self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And that's one of the keys to the Christian life. If you want to have self-control, give the keys to the Spirit. You hand everything over to Him and say, okay, you lead me and you guide me. That's the, the, the implication here. And, and so there's one main command, and that's in verse uh, 18, so the, the, the prohibition, do not get drunk with wine, and then, but be filled with the Spirit. And then verses 19, 20, and 21, we're going to see, so in the Greek, they're uh, participles. And the way that they relate to the main verb of the command is they are telling us one of two things, and it's hard to, to determine grammatically. It could be describing either the, the manner in which we are to be filled with the Spirit, uh, or it could be describing the results. So this is how we do something or what flows out of it. Either way, walking or being filled with the Spirit and these other activities are going to be inseparable. So if you look at uh, verse 19, you can kind of be, begin to, to mark out uh, what these participles are, of how we go about being filled or the results of being filled with the Spirit. Uh, the first one is speaking Speaking to one another, and we're going to be doing that in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if you notice, there's going to be these these participles that tell us what this looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And then there's always a connection of each of those participles to something pertaining to Christ. So in this one, we're to be speaking. And what are we to speak to one another? 
psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We speak the word and encourage one another with theological truth. Which also gives us the concept that, that songs are given to instruct. They're given to, to teach and we need to, to hold them fast. And we need to sing songs that are theologically rich. But speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs... And then here's the, the next two participles go together. So singing is number two. And then the, the LSB has making melody with your heart to the Lord or making melody. So that's the second or the third participle. The idea is of praising. So singing and praising. And then how is that connected to Christ? I'm to be doing that with my heart, with my entire being and direct it to Christ himself. I'm to be worshiping. Right, so I'm to be speaking, I'm to be worshiping. Uh, and then the, the fourth one is to be, I'm to be giving thanks, always giving thanks in verse 20. For an exact number of things, what is it? All things. Uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm to be giving that, directing that to God, the Father. So there's uh, this, this level, this progression, moving from speaking the word to one another, praising and worshiping in my own heart, and then giving thanks uh, in all things. And then verse 21 It's an interesting verse, right? And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we see that the command of of be in submission, be subject to one another. Uh, And the connection to Christ is I'm to do this in fear, in reverence, in in worship. Right? Remember, going back up to what's the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. So now I'm called to submit myself to others out of fear and respect for, for Christ. Uh, and so we, we see overall that, that the Spirit works uh, in a Christian as a, as a hand works in a glove, right? I had to go find my gloves this week because I came out to my car one of these mornings and the, it was 26 degrees. It's like, that's cold. So I turned the car on and then I'm scraping my, my windshield with my little ice scraper. My hands are freezing, right? And all of the, the scraped ice hitting my hands. I'm like, I need to find my gloves ASAP, right? My gloves don't do much good when they're sitting in the house, because what do gloves do without hands in them? Nothing. Yeah, absolutely nothing. Right. Uh, and, and that's the, uh, the idea here that the glove uh, is only uh, works with a hand inside of it. Uh, the, and the work of uh, a glove is really the work of the hand. Uh, and so as the spirit works in us and does and produces things in us, we're the ones uh, moving and acting, but it's the Spirit who's at work uh, in us and through us to accomplish His plans and His purposes. That's what it looks like to be filled or governed by the Spirit. Uh, and the, the Spirit is going to, to lead us and to grow us to become more and more like Christ. There's a wonderful quote here from, from John MacArthur on what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. He says, It is to live in the consciousness of the personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. As if we were standing next to him and to let his mind dominate our life. It is to fill ourselves with God's word so that his thoughts will be our thoughts, his standards, our standards, his work, our work, and his will, our will. As we yield to the truth of Christ, the Holy Spirit will lead us to say, do, and be what God wants us to say, do, and be. And so, so Paul gives this, this summary of wisdom in the Christian life. Right? Carefully consider how you live, diligently learn the Lord's will, and then be governed by the Holy Spirit. And, and I know we, we went through that in a, a really fast way, but, but I want to do that really, compre- I guess, 
in, in a flyby because I want to, we, we want to get to verses 22, uh, chapter 5, verse 22 to chapter 6, verse 9. That's the household code. You said, Thomas, you wanted to teach on that, but why are you starting here? Right? Why did you, why, why did you begin here, which doesn't have anything to do with it? It seems like it. Well, if you look at verse 22, his wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's actually no verb in that verse in the Greek. Some of the English translations will have be subject as italicized. So it's literally, verse 22, is wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. See, verse 22 is carrying over the idea of verse 21. And verse 21, what did it say? Be subject, be in submission to one another. Right? So it's, it's carrying that idea over. But even the being subject to one another, what is that an outflowing of? It's the, an outflowing of being filled in the Spirit. And really being filled in the Spirit is a principle of walking wisely in Christ. There's this, this cascading idea. And I wanted to, to bring that to your attention because as we talk in, in weeks uh, ahead about what uh, the, the Christian household is to look like. We have to begin here. We have to begin with an understanding that every person in the Christian household, uh, yes, there's going to be specific roles and responsibilities, but every single person should be striving to do what we see here in this passage. Each and every person needs to carefully consider how you're living. Each and every person needs to be diligent to learn what is the Lord's will, right? And again, the the will of the Lord for different members of the household is going to be different because he's made husbands and wives different. He's made parents and children different. And they're going to relate to one another in a unique way. So the goal of each and every member of the household first has to be, I need to be a spirit-filled person, considering my life, yielding wholly to God, Living for his glory rather than for my own desires. That, that is the beginning point. And we have to, to start there and, and, uh, and we can't move beyond that. And again, this is, as we looked at at the very beginning, the world is seeking to decimate the household. The world wants to make households non-existent or they want to make them flat. The world wants to make households so that every single person in the household is exactly the same. There's no authority. There's no hierarchy. There's no order. And the reason for that, the world would say, and part of the the reason that the Communist Manifesto says we need to abolish the family is because, uh, and what we hear now is that the family, the patriarchy, is oppressive. Anybody ever hear that? It's oppressive. Right. Uh, And really, the reason it's oppressive is because it represents an authority structure. It represents uh, something bigger and grander. But then you're like, but what does it represent? Uh, The the household is a miniature representation of the entire created order. Uh, And the entire created order has a head. God. It has a creator whom everybody else is accountable to. And again, if you, if you think back, what did, what did the Communist Manifesto want to do? They wanted to tear everything down, make everything exactly the, the same. And in doing that, they're really seeking to, to deny and to destroy uh, God's presence in civilization. 
And so there's a, there's a bigger picture as we study the, the household and what God has ordained it to be, that there's a, a vertical authority structure that, that mirrors the order of the entire world. Uh, and, and we can't jettison that because of uh, what the world is saying, that this is oppressive. Like, yes, this is an authority structure, but it's a good authority structure. That was given to us by God for human flourishing. So I, wanna, I want us all to, to understand that the right goal as we jump into this larger study uh, is what we see here in this passage. Uh, these wisdom principles uh, and that we need to, to long to, to glorify God by fulfilling His will for our lives, carefully considering how we are living, how we're walking, and then we can fulfill the individual roles. Does that make sense? Amen. Let me, let me pray, uh, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll get ready for our annual meeting. But, Father, we, we come to you praising you, thanking you, uh, rejoicing that you have given us life and breath and everything else, and we would beseech you for wisdom to know your will in our hearts and in our minds, uh, and that you would then strengthen us to live out your will for us, uh, to your glory, honor, and praise. Uh, We thank you for this time uh, in your word. I pray that as we go from here that we would all carefully consider how we are living and that you would show us from your word by the power of your spirit whether we are living wisely or unwisely and then that you would grant us repentance and faith to align our life to your word uh, and that we might uh, begin to to thrive uh, and flourish because we are living according to your plans and purposes rather than our own. Help us not to be wise in our own eyes, but to fear you and to turn away from evil and to live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.